internet. Mike and Andy here. Or or as uh, we like to refer to you sometimes, internet, we call you the World Wide Web. Yeah. And um, we're delighted you're with us. And thank you. We, we passed, Andy tells me, last week um, in real time. <laughs> I don't know when you're going to listen to this. But to us last week, we passed 100,000 downloads right we're a six digit company now we are six digits so <laughs> so that that's very exciting and very honoring and so we're thrilled that um, you're a part of our online community and um today's been a bad day it's been a bad day we're recording this on good friday 2016 and it's been a bad day because mm. i discovered something that you know if, if you're going to discover a sin I mean, I guess Good Friday is a good day to do that. Yeah. But um, I recently discovered, uh, and this is, I mean, it's tough. We don't want to overshare, but we don't want to undershare either. And so we want to be real. You know, that's one of the values we have for Vox. And so um, I discovered that my wife bought, uh, and not only purchased, like spent our money, which is God's money on, but enjoys Justin Bieber's new album and <laughs> oh, a new enemy of the music industry is unfolding. well I just thought I just it makes me yearn for the days of Adele I mean really so so my 10 year old daughter is watching her 44 year old mom singing if you don't lie then baby you just love yourself what's that even mean that's just dumb. That's dumb. So I'm sad. I'm sad. And and my sadness has is reflecting in our choice of topic today for, mm. for podcasting because you know I thought when when we got married that her job as my wife was to like the things I like. And I've failed miserably uh, as part of that. So we want to talk today, Andy, about the myth of this idea of a soulmate so the myth of the one because i i've heard people and i used it for a while i'm i you know she's the one or he's the one and there's Mm. this sense and it's and it's it's brutally present in in christian circles like there's this one person that god has for you and and i want to i want to blow the crap out of that (laughs) all right because because i've clearly not married her all right if that's true if there is the one that I messed it, I messed it up. And that means if everyone only has one person they're supposed to marry, then I have single-handedly ruined the one for everybody else, yeah. right? Because if one's off, then the rest of the world is toast. So um, so we, I, I want to talk a little bit about this. And I want to talk about um, where this comes from. And, and, it, and it doesn't matter if you're listening and you're a um, a non-Bible person, and there are a lot of you listening, which we absolutely love. There's still a, a Hollywood fiction oh, totally. that talks about this totally. kind of falling in love idea, and um, and 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 if you are a Jesus follower, then this is this is like part of the Christian subculture that just it needs to be shot because it's not it's not a biblical idea. Um, and it is, uh, it is one of many instances when it comes to love and sexuality where Jesus followers are way more uh, engaged with things outside the scriptures than with things inside. So, mm. um, so I want to talk a little bit. So this, 
this stuff is is part of a conversation that we'll be having. And what, what you're noticing is that we'll start a conversation and move away and come back to it. And so we've got we've got lots of um, conversation topics hanging in the air. But in light of my my wife's transgressions, we thought the myth of the soulmate was appropriate kind of response. So uh, the, there is the, there is um, uh, ample warrant in the scriptures. Um, for the idea that that every single couple will have irreconcilable differences, mm-hmm. so it's not like it's not like there are some couples that have uh, irreconcilable differences, and the rest of us are okay. Nope, every couple does, and this goes back. This takes us back to the book of Genesis. And so, again, if you're not a Bible person, you're not into talking snakes, and you don't believe Adam and Eve, and that that's fine. There's wisdom here. Um, I, I take this stuff seriously because Jesus Jesus took it seriously, but. For you, I think there's still good stuff to learn. The biblical account opens you know, with a book called Genesis or Origins. Um, and it uh, presents, in its first chapter, presents a God who is literally speaking things into existence. And so let there be light, and there was light, and let there be sky, and there was sky. And it's really, we'll, we'll do a whole series someday on Genesis 1 because it's so beautiful and it's so subversive. Um, but, but you get to a point in the narrative where God says, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humanity singular in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, plural, male and female, he created them god blessed them and said to them be fruitful and increase in number fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish in the sea the sea the birds in the sky and over every living creature so first of all the word rule when we say subdue it or rule over it those are not words in hebrew that have the connotation of pollute it and strip mine it no these are these are exercise god's benevolent care and channel his blessing over the created order as God's almost vice regents or governors or or co-rulers or partners. That's the idea. So this God that creates everything now entrusts his creation to landlords. They're not owners, they're property managers. Yeah. And and so this this man and this woman were made in God's image and likeness and those are important words we'll talk about at another podcast. But they, they are, are absolute equality words. So the both the man and the woman are made in God's image and God's likeness. And they were made as partners to, to affect um, the mandate that God had given them. To fill the earth, which means having sex. Which And the rabbis love this. The first command in the whole Bible of the 613 commands of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the first command is have sex. Which is awesome. <laughs> and we'll get to a theology of sexuality in another podcast. Mm. But here, um, man and woman were given work to do. And they were to do it in partnership as image bearers. Now, the 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 scene shifts in Genesis chapter 2. And it almost feels like a different or contradictory account. But the, the, the two chapters relate to each other in an interesting way. Which will be another topic for future podcasts. Okay. <laughs> And so um, the man is created this um, Adam. So he, the, one of the things we'll get to when we talk about women in the church and what their roles can and can't be is the fact that in Genesis 1, the word Adam or Adam 
can be a proper name, it can be a generic term for a gendered male, or it can just mean mankind, humanity. And it's super confusing about which is which. And so, so much debate goes on. Okay, so, so when did Adam become a male? Was he always, you know, so, so we'll, we'll talk about that later, but so uh, in the, in the account of chapter two, the man and the woman are created separately. And so in Genesis two, verse seven, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, which is an interesting Hebrew wordplay because the word for ground is Adama and the word for man is Adam, which means the man was named in relationship to the ground. So so literally earthling or dirt being. Yeah, we was, were made as a dirty being. Yeah, exactly. And uh, to which all 12-year-old boys said yes. Yes. Um, the, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Then it says that God uh, saw that it was not good that the man was alone. And so... Um, it, I, and then, so verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good for a man to be alone, which is, which is striking in Hebrew because in chapter one, at the end of every section of creation, the, the, the statement is made, it is good. It is good. It is good. And then here in chapter two, there's something not good that namely that the man is alone. And so the, the animals are prated, uh, before God and God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now. This is horrible in English because it sounds like the man needs an administrative assistant. You know, I will make a helper suitable for him, right? The, the help, the word helper, it's awful. All right. It is an awful translation of the word Ezer or Ezer. I've heard it pronounced both ways. I'm going to pronounce it Ezer. The word Ezer with one exception is used of God coming to the rescue of his people. So the word is a rescuer. Ooh. The word is ally. Come on. It's it's when God. So when it says when it, well, like the psalmist says, I lift my eyes up um, up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? It's Ezer that my help, my Ezer comes from you, God. You are my Ezer. So the idea is this is not a this is not an inferior word. This is actually a rescuer word. All right. So it's a really strong ally word. All right. But the, the word suitable is the word that's way interesting. The word suitable is the word connecto. So, so God says, I will make an Ezer connecto for him. Now, Ezer obviously is ally, but connecto is connection of a couple of words. And, and it, it, here's what the word means. I will make an alike opposite the man. So counterpart is a decent synonym, but the word literally means an alike opposite. Someone who is like the man and someone who is opposite from the man. All right. So you think of, and, and I don't have a good metaphor, but perhaps the picture of a, a puzzle. So if you have two puzzle pieces, they have to be from the same puzzle in order to fit together, but they have to be differently shaped so that they fit. Mm-hmm. And so so the idea, I think, is that male and female were to fit together as Ezer Conegdo. So total equals no hierarchy at all um, in partnership um, as image bearers and that she and he were alike opposites. All right. Makes sense so far. Yeah. Okay. Now. Fascinating. Oh, sure. And we're going to talk. I mean, this is like, we're skipping such good stuff. So the, the, so God parades all the animals 
in front of the Adam. And this is really important because the whole, the whole point in chapter one and chapter two is that human beings are not like the animals. That's the, that's the big point. And so God's not doing this because he's like, hey, you know, the dogs look attractive or how about cats or mammals? No, no, no. This is something far more significant. It's, it's reinforcing to Adam that only another image bearer um, is an Ezer Konegdo. So, so the text says that God takes part of the man's side and forms that side into a woman. Now, um, and then, and then, and again, if you're here and you're going, man, really? <laughs> okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. But just yeah. hang in there. Yeah. All right, because there's a punchline coming. Um, so, so the man made, or excuse me, the Lord God made a woman from the, the side he'd taken out of the man. He brought her to the man. And then the man says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman for she was taken out of man. And it's another word play. Well, a, a gendered male, another word for that is ish. Uh, and a woman is isha. So again, it's another word play. So the man was named in relationship to the ground. The woman was named in relationship to the man. They each reflect their origin, in other words, which is interesting. And then the text says this. That is why, because they are now Ezra Konegdo, that is why a man leaves his father and mother, is united to his wife, the two become one flesh. And we'll talk about that later. Adam and his wife, so now they're married, interestingly enough, were both naked, they felt no shame. So, so the image you get of male-female relating together is one of absolute quality, absolute partnership, absolute co-reigning kind of under God's benevolent rule and expressing that benevolent rulership over the created world. All right, so that's the picture. That lasts for all of two chapters. And then uh, this man, this woman, listened to a talking snake. The talking snakes uh, tempts them to eat fruit from which God said, don't eat the fruit from that tree, this particular tree. And there's this temptation sort of narrative that's that's really kind of insightful. Um, but what happens is that the, the first man and the first woman enter into disobedience because they were commanded not, they could have the fruit of any other tree, but this one tree was a no. In a garden full of yes, there was one no. And so, of course, they run to the no. What God does then in response is God, he speaks what will now be true that sin and death and rebellion have entered the world. And so he speaks to the serpent and then he speaks to the woman. Uh, and this is really interesting. He, he says to the woman uh, in chapter three, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. And so the idea is the woman was the, the one through whom the earth would be filled. And so God frustrates that interestingly enough. And then he says, your desire will be for your husband and your husband will rule over you. Ooh, now, oh man, this is a whole other podcast. I mean, we're just chiming. We're just, I know, I'm, I'm sorry to be so We're laying out the next six months of podcasts. <laughs> exactly. So, so you're, so, so God, this is not God's preference. This is not God, the way God created things. This is not his intention um, God created an Ezra Konegdo, but now he says, instead of that, there's going to be a power struggle because the word desire here is the word that's used to master. Um, and the word used for rule is the, is the word used to describe the way a king would rule or try to dominate his subjects. 
So, so you have, and again, not, not to gender stereotype, but any, I think couple in relationship would say, yeah, they're power issues that we, so money and sex are two of the most common ones. Why? Because they're actually power issues. They're not money and sex issues. Uh, and so, so instead of Ezra Konegdo, now you've got two people who will both try to rule over the other, right? To get their way, they're each now bent, not towards benevolence and rulership, but bent towards selfish getting what they want. And then, and then um, God uh, curses the ground. Now, it's interesting, right? What was, what was the Adam named after? Yeah, dirt. The dirt. Yeah. So what does God curse? The dirt. He curses the dirt. That now the dirt won't cooperate. Now he's got a he's got a sweat. He's it's painful toil. Instead of rule and subdue, now it's through painful toil you will earn, you will carve your way out. So so creation now is affected too. So the idea is that that because of disobedience, that that things are now fallen. They're good. But they're not as good as they could be, um, and and so we see many instances of beauty and truth and goodness and love, um, and and those things are all good and true and beautiful. But we also see that even in those instances, there are still specks of darkness. There are still echoes of uh, of the fact that yes, that. It should be like that all the time. You know, I mean, all this protest against the the inequalities of human life. I mean, that's all coming from the instinctual awareness that things aren't as they should be. So, how does this relate to soulmates? Yeah. Well, all right. Are you ready? I am. I... All right. There was a study done in 2002. And the topic of the study was why it was answering the question why men don't commit all right so so do you think since 2002 men commit more or less less right so <laughs> so I, I don't know that this top this study really helped anybody but it was interesting because it, there was a paradox at the heart of the study the reason the men said in this particular study that they did not commit was because that they were looking for a soulmate. All right. And here's how they defined a soulmate. Now this is key. The, here's how they define it. The first and lesser important of the two qualifications for a soulmate was sexual chemistry and compatibility. Um, and, and obviously, I mean, that's all something we would want. But the second part is the really interesting part. The more the more important part of the definition of a soulmate was that they were they were holding out for someone who was compatible with them. Now, that sounds good until you unpack what compatible sure, right. means. Compatible in this case, uh, according to these gentlemen, meant someone who was low maintenance someone who liked them as they were and wouldn't require them to change. Okay? Someone who didn't have a bunch of baggage herself and someone who um, uh, had very little um, emotional neediness. Okay? So, brothers and sisters of the internet, I have great news. I have great news for you. No such person exists if you are holding out 
for somebody who you call a soulmate. And by soulmate, you mean they complete me, they make me happy, they, they, they bring fulfillment into my life. No such person exists. Why? First, they're an Ezra Konegdo, meaning the person you will end up marrying will be different than you by definition. And then secondly, under the fall, under uh, the fallenness that infects every human heart, that means that difference will now be bent towards selfish ends, not self uh, other-centered ends. And so what you have is this beautiful train wreck of expectation <laughs> that people are not getting married because they're waiting for the one. And at the same time, the recognition that there is no such thing. There is, there, there may be the one, the soulmates we all yearn for live with the unicorns and the leprechauns. (laughs) You know what I mean? There is no such thing. I love, I love the way one writer puts it. This is, this is absolutely genius. This is a guy named Stanley Hauerwas. So he's an ethicist. And a social commentary. He has this great line. He says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are the primary institutions of personal fulfillment. Now, pause. Okay. Why people get married, and it, and it could be you know civil unions between gay people. It can be marriages that are church sanctioned. It could be marriages that are you know we're on the beach and or we've lived together seven years. That it's kind of irrelevant. All right, this is not just a conversation about quote unquote Christian whatever traditional marriage. The the uh, the thing that is so. So funny is that the reason people get married now has changed so dramatically over the last, uh, compared to the last 2000 years. The reason people got married is you got married for cultural reasons. You got married for social reasons because that's what everyone was doing. You got married to produce children. You got married, uh, for lots of other reasons than I want to be happy. All right. So that's shifted in the last 40 years. The reasons people get married now, they get married now as expressions of self-fulfillment, right? That's what soulmate means. Um, that I'm getting married to meet needs in my life. Now, he says, and, it, and it's so true, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes that marriage and family exist for me and my emotional wants and desires. He says the assumption so this is how Ross again. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we will always marry the wrong person. There is no such thing. Now, now on, on a graded scale, there is more wisdom and less wisdom. Right, so so there are people who are more likely uh, to be good matches, and there are people who are less likely to be good matches. But the point is, defining what a good match has to be rethought yeah. from the start. Because if good match means this is the person that's going to complete me, this is the person that's going to love me, this is the person, it's all for me. Yeah. I'm just loving myself through this other person. See. Marriage becomes fulfilling when you actually begin to believe that there's a higher purpose than your fulfillment. And then, and only then, does marriage become fulfilling. It's ironic. It's, it's what Jesus says. If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. Right? It's the same thing. If you want to find fulfillment in your marriage, you have to abandon the idea that your marriage 
is there for fulfillment. Yeah. And when you do that, that you're there to your the the reason you're married is to grow in love, to grow in holiness, to grow in sacrifice, to grow in service, to grow in giving yourself away, to grow um, and to have those parts of you chiseled a way that are the painful, ugly parts to be healed from things in your past. I mean, all of this, like the bigger reasons. And in the Christian idea of marriage, marriage exists to be a picture of the relationship between the way God loves people. Yeah. If you buy that whole train of thought and abandon the idea that there's one person out there who that you'll never argue, you'll never fight, you'll never have seasons of deep disappointment or deep pain that somehow if you just chosen differently, you could avoid all of that. That is the biggest myth that is so destructive in Christian marriages and elsewhere. Right, the myth of the soulmate. There is no such thing as the one person for you. Now, some Christians will say, "Yeah, but in the Bible, right, there are a couple of times where God like picks out a person." Yeah. Right. Those are Old Testament stories, and they all have to do with the messianic line promised through Abraham's descendants. That's the only reason those things were so specific. There is nothing else, not one speck of teaching anywhere in the Bible that suggests that there's one person for you. Not one. There is no Hollywood. In fact, the word love, the, the highest word for love, has nothing to do with feeling. It's, a, it's an action word. Yeah. Right, it's the cho- it's the choosing of covenant love. I mean, it, listen, we've we've swallowed hook, line, and sinker, this happily happily ever after thing, and it is so not true. And so, so the temptation now with social media, you can be in touch with people from years ago. The temptation, of course, is to think, well, if I just chosen differently, I would be happier. And because happiness is now the greatest goal, well, then of course we have irreconcilable differences. And I think the Bible uh, and I think wisdom say that there are times when divorce is the least worst option. All right. But the the, the majority of the divorces that I'm personally familiar with um, all come from a place where, or I should say most of them come from a place, well, I just wasn't being fulfilled. And you can dress that up in very spiritual language, but that's what it comes down to. I believe that someone else could fulfill me better than you. And so when you when you kind of operate from that point of view, well, then of course, exchanging partners or having an affair or the adrenaline rush of, you know, flirting with somebody, I mean, of course you're going to run that way if you're the center of the thing. If something else is the center of the thing, well, then great. See, the, the issue with marriage is this, and, 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 and Howard Ross goes on, he says, We never know who we really marry. We just think we do. Or even if we marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage being what it is means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. So the Bible's instruction to husbands and wives has to do with now finding again the ezerkenegdoness of marriage. And so that's why Paul will talk about um, husbands, respect your wives, give yourself up for them, serve them, because that's what Jesus does to the church. And wives, submit. And that word, we'll talk. We'll have a whole session on that word. That word comes after, uh, um, uh, comes after a verse that says, submit yourselves to each other as you do, in Christ, and then it will say, "Wives, do this to your husbands." It doesn't even say the word "submit" 
again. It never says sure. wives submit to your husbands. It yeah. just says wives comma to your husbands. And and the idea of submission is simply placing your well being under the well being of someone else's. That's it. That's what it means. It doesn't mean doormat. It doesn't mean benevolent dictatorship. It just means the predominant practice of every Jesus follower is to put the well-being of others ahead of their own. Mm. That's it. Mm-hmm. Which seems to me which would, would line up so much with the idea of rescuer, right? Like mm-hmm. if what we're talking about, like if it's, I mean, it's interesting. That's what we're going back Yeah, for. because what, you know, I mean, I think of, I, the first image that comes to mind is like obviously like a Coast Guard, you know, it's, but it's, it's kind of like, that still seems very authoritative rescuing. It doesn't right. seem like submissive, res, submissive rescue. Right. Which is very, the subversive approach, obviously. It's like, you know, if we, if we allow to go into a helping circumstance for someone else, right. put aside everything we're bringing to the table just to be available, to listen, to be graceful. Come on. That can become the most life bearing right. and rescuing thing we could do. That's right. When do you really enjoy your children? When you have not made them the center of your universe, right? I mean, that's when you really enjoy them. Uh, when do you enjoy your marriage? When you haven't made it the center of your universe. I mean, that's just this is just how it works. It's God's genius in cursing us the way that he's cursed us. And I don't mean curse in the bad sense. I mean, it's, it's an exercise of mercy in this, in this instance. What God did in Genesis 3 was he made it impossible for anything to ultimately fulfill us. That's what cursing the relationship between man and woman did. That's what cursing the ground did. That, yep, we have momentary seasons of satisfaction where I've got a promotion or I've got a I've got a report card or I get the doctorate. But th- but but after a while, none of those things ultimately satisfy. Not one of them. No new affair, no new relationship. I mean, those are great momentary highs. But none of them ultimately satisfy. And the reason they don't is because God God designed the world now to keep us hungry and thirsty so that we're always looking for something else. Because he's, he's using his, our own self-interest against him. Or no, no. He's using our own self-interest against us is what I mean to say. And so he keeps us hungry and thirsty for more and more and more until ultimately, because no one comes to Jesus and just goes, hey, you know... I just was convinced Jesus was the Alpha and the Omega, you know, just one day. <laughs> no, no, you're broken or you're sick or you're desperate or you're empty, right? That's that's so so God's a genius, but the way the world works now between men and women, between spouses, partners, whatever word you want to use, is that that um no partnership will ever be truly fulfilling. Um, there is no there is no soulmate that's out there. If by soulmate we mean someone that's going to fulfill me personally, um, and there is nobody. So so you know this isn't terribly romantic when I when I when I do teachings on this, and you can kind of hear people sort of bummed because there is something about that fiction that is very very appealing, right? But it's so damaging, and it's damaging on both ends of the marriage decision. So on the one hand, it keeps people from getting married, ironically, because they have such a high view that no real person could possibly ever fulfill. So they just stay single. But then when they get married, for whatever reason they get married, now they're they're set up for disappointment because all of the work they thought they did to find the one will be shown to be fruitless. Why? Because there's no such person. Now, a guy named Tim Keller who's a pastor in New York, wrote a, a really great book on marriage. And he says, marriage, the reason, the reason marriage 
um, the the reason you cannot believe that it's the other person um, that's wrong and that if you just swapped out another one, you know, it'd be better. The reason you can't believe that is because marriage does two things that are inescapable. It has the power of um, it has the power of truth is the first thing he says. And, and what that means is the power the power of truth means that um, anytime that your life is put in proximity uh, with another person who um, themselves has a bit of darkness in them, anytime you are put in um, such proximity with somebody like that, the the what marriage will do is reflect your heart. It will show you your heart. It will show you. I didn't think I was as selfish as I was until I got married. I did not think I was as mean as I was until I got married, right? I mean, there's this sense that it, it has the power to totally reveal us. And swapping out uh, a, a partner doesn't change the nature of the arrangement. It's the it's the arrangement that does this, yeah. not the partner. Yeah. Make sense? Yep. And so the arrangement of putting two sinners in close proximity reveals all of this junk. And so swapping out partners doesn't do a thing. And it's so funny. Um, it's so funny to to realize wherever, like our recovery brothers and sisters say, wherever you go, there you are, right? Whatever baggage you're bringing into this one, well, it's just going to be baggage in the next one too because you're there. And so you say, okay, all right. Well, the the great the 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 second great power that Keller mentions is the power of love, and this is why we all undergo this. <laughs> if you know, because some people, some of our listeners might be going, you know what, dude, no way. But um, but but paradoxically, again, um, what I've learned in my marriage through the the hard stuff the man i was a total jerk there or man i i can't believe how selfish my heart is or my goodness i'm so disappointed because she's not fulfilling x or y or z or whatever um the 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 redemptive power of marriage to heal old wounds to be loved in the midst of our brokenness um to to in in uh, in God's grace to almost like remediate what our self image is and could be and and I mean there's there's so much power there but the power is for good or bad and so we just see the carnage all around us right and we think well the answer then has to be we've got to pick rightly and 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 certainly we're not we're not just saying hey just marry the first person you meet and good luck. Mm-hmm. That it all it, it will all suck. So just go ahead and embrace the suck. You know we're not. No, no. There's wisdom, yeah. absolutely. And so so great wisdom in um, spending lots of time together and the ups and the downs. Great wisdom in moving slow. You know, great wisdom and all those things. But what we are saying is, even if you do the process right, there's still going to be that moment when you wake up and and go my God, what have I done? You know, yeah. there just is that moment. Yeah. And and for me, this has been totally liberating because what it's done, it's taken the focus off of my wife because that's where I want to put the focus. Here are all the things that she needs to do. And, and that's not true at all because the focus should be on yours truly, right? And all the ways I fall short, all the ways uh, that I could love better, but even focused on me isn't the right thing. See what I think what Jesus wants to do 
in marriages of two Christ followers is to use that as the furnace of transformation where you 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 beget you get to like practice loving your enemy and and blessing those who persecute <laughs> oh, you okay. and serving and you know <laughs> marriage you, becomes a crucible pot for, uh, well, for all things for like, for some seasons yeah, it does yeah absolutely it does because because you will I mean how long have you been married uh, five and a half years almost six in June you're a rookie I know you don't know so green anything so green um. Yeah, and, and and we've only been married sixteen, so it's not like I got it figured out. But it's it's funny because you know, as as Justina and I do this thing called marriage together, um, we we have found so much joy on the other side of. We found, I mean, it's my family is the most fulfilling part of my life, but it's not because they meet my needs. It's because I've abandoned. I, I've I've worked hard to abandon the demand that they have to, and in that case, oh, now it's just so rich, right? That's the point. That's the genius, and it works everywhere. It works in your relationship with God. It works in your relationship with people. It works. This is why Jesus will simply walk around saying, you know, everything's upside down in my kingdom. If you want to gain, you've got to lose. If you want to find, um, you you've got to seek. Um, you, you, to be first, you got to become last. Yes. I mean, it's just all of the, thank you. I was trying to, I knew there was another good one that was out there. So, so that's the big one, Andy. That's the big one. And, and, um, for me, a huge part of this was therapy. So I went to, to see a counselor, a therapist for 18 months. And at first it was all about me. And then, and then, um, it became about, how I treated my wife and what that said about me. And dude, for another podcast, oh my word, did my world just get wrecked by, by the the realization of the ways that I would shame my wife for not being more like me. Oh my word, I had to do so much repenting. So um, that's for a future future day. But but we wanted just to change it up. We we done um, women in ministry, and then we had this wonderful conversation about Down syndrome. And thanks for the great, great feedback yeah, on so that. So much fun. So much fun. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh. Um. So we thought we'd 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 start into uh, a little bit of relationship stuff, and uh, certainly not as experts. <laughs> <laughs> no, no so, way. But but well, I think even more so. I mean that's. I mean, yeah, like my marriage is super green and we're, we're down in the trenches, you know, right now, like we got two young kids and, um, you know, every, every day feels new and feels like process. And I think that's, yeah, that's definitely the one thing I've come to learn over six years is that I chose a process, not an answer, you know, to who I am. And I totally affirm the, the times where I feel I'm able to let go the most of myself and not let my fulfillment be based on my kids be based on my come wife on. and that come on um does jesus reveal himself most do i feel the most fulfilled do i experience the most joy and um yeah and, and even learning how to do that is, yep. is not easy no it's so it's so difficult terrific and, um <laughs> yeah i mean it's like like we've talked about before it's like it's a covenant um, that's a promise that exposes us, you know, not this contractual agreement. Of, yes. If you do this this way, I will be fulfilled and treat you well, you know, but rather 
you know, I'm promising this life to you. And in that, I need to expose myself so we can grow as yes. one instead of two independent people that are yes. joy and oh. so on and so forth. But. Oh, well, I mean, this we'll close with this anecdote. How long are we, Andy? We're at 41. Okay. Minutes. All right. I told him half an hour. Hey, we went longer and there's people out there who wanted longer. More, so way more went longer. More. Yeah. Way more. Yep. Gene, <laughs> you wanted 30. Well, you've been outvoted. Um, so my, my wife and I were filling out this premarital questionnaire and some of you have heard this story and it's absolutely true. And the question was, but we were going into premarital counseling and the question was, how many times a week do you think you will have sex? And, um, and I put as a, as a man who had never gone all the way at 29, I put uh, 15 times <laughs> times a week, twice a day, and three on the Sabbath, and uh, and I meant it. And um, I thought, you know, I can sustain that. I got some. I got some time to make up. It's all about what you can do. Exactly. I think. I think you know, a, a fluid replacement is going to be key there. Um, the hamstring. So I just thought, you know, I thought my wife put two. She put two in, in, in 16 years and even she overestimated. All right. So, so one of the things that has been so central to the journey uh, of the two of us is how, how do you manage all the expectations you didn't know you had, or maybe you oh, had. Yeah. And, and then how do you, how do you manage disappointing each other? I mean, my, my wife did not marry a chunky ball guy, <laughs> you know? Hey, yeah. I, I, I came across some, uh, I right, some high school photos of you for yes. rugby or something. Yes, and I was buff. Let's get you back. I know, dude. Seriously, it's I know. We'll do a podcast on food someday. Okay. Um. Uh. I know. Oh, I know. So my poor wife. So I look in the mirror and I just go, "She didn't marry this. She didn't. She did not dream of this guy when she was 16 years old, thinking about you know what her future husband will be like." So. So we'll bring on Mrs. Erie someday about um, all the ways Mr. Erie has dropped the ball. That one will definitely not be 30 minutes. Let's just say that. All right. So um, uh, close your eyes wherever you are right now. Trust that Jesus will take the wheel if you're driving. Trust it. Trust it. Talk about faith. Trust it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you. May, and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Brothers and sisters, thanks for letting us be a part of your life. Um, if you wouldn't mind, go to iTunes and um, fill out a review. Yeah. If it's good. And or if it's us. not good. Okay. All right, Andy. Yeah. Um, but particularly if it's good, <laughs> fill it out. Um, and, uh, and thanks so much for all of you who contribute and... Um, ask questions and interact with us and make fun of us and the gentleman that started the pray for justy hashtag yeah. after <laughs> after the last podcast <laughs> and realized oh she's amazing what she do with that clown that's a whole different conversation here's what she, here's what my wife said all right here's what she said these are actual words she said your personality makes you more attractive that's what she said she said those words. Oh, she's peeking in right now, and she's nodding. Anything you want to say, baby? We just talked about the soulmate. You're my soulmate, baby. Oh, oh no. no. She ruined oh, it. No. She ruined it. The whole thing. You had me at hello. Oh, <laughs> sleepless in Seattle. No, no, no. Oh, no, Jerry Maguire. Oh, 
I've never seen that movie. Okay. I'm so uh, baby, I'm sorry. I, Whoa! Okay, we're going to edit all that out. <laughs> no. And um, my sweet wife, whom I love. All right, so brothers and sisters, until next time. Thanks for listening to Vox, the Mike Erie podcast. Be sure to like Mike on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash official Mike Erie. Follow Mike on Twitter and Periscope at Mike Erie for live interaction and ongoing Q&A. Don't forget to visit SubversiveKingdom.com for further engagement and information about Mike.